This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. Nobody's heard this one. Good. So there's this elderly man, an older man, and he was invited by another elderly friend to come over for dinner one evening. And as he watched his elderly friend and his wife communicate, he was so impressed by the way that his buddy preceded every single request with to his wife with endearing terms. Honey, you know, my life, darling sweetheart, pumpkin, etc. The the couple had been married almost 70 years and he realized that clearly from this that they were still so much in love. And at one point, the wife excused herself and went in the kitchen and uh, the friend leaned over to his host and he said, you know, I just think it's wonderful that after all these years, you can still call your wife those loving pet names. And the old man hung his head and said, friend, I got to tell you the truth. I forgot her name like 10 years ago. That was a pretty good one. Like a second round of laughs over there. So um, that's a good one. That's a good one. So as you may recall, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I spoke about... um, a number of Hawaiian and Hawaiian pigeon words and phrases that I've learned since moving to the islands. And obviously, the one that pretty much everyone comes in knowing, whether you're from here or whatever, is aloha, right? Um, and when I was in Kauai last year, I saw the words spray painted on the bridge. Aloha also means goodbye, um, which kind of stung a little bit, but, um, you know, it's, it's true. Uh, But I learned early on that another way, a common way to say goodbye uh, is ahui ho, which I think is actually a bit more fun to say. Um, And and so that got me thinking about goodbyes this week. And, uh, you know, saying goodbye usually isn't very fun. Uh, In the coming weeks, we're going to be saying goodbye to some folks from the bridge, and that's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. Goodbyes can be painful. They can be hard. We've all seen the videos, right, of soldiers uh, doing these surprise returns for their family members, but we rarely see the goodbye videos. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever seen one. That's probably at least in part because they're just too painful to watch. Those are painful moments. The goodbyes in movies, right, some of them they can just like tug at our heartstrings. There are some lines even in kids' movies, these goodbye lines that are just powerful, uh, Winnie the Pooh, he has this line in a movie where he says, how lucky am I to have something that makes saying goodbye so hard? That's a really, really profound and good line. There's a line from a Dr. Seuss work that says, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. Again, really, really good, right? Really profound. Charlie Brown, 
He has a line where he says, goodbye always makes my throat hurt. It's a profound one too. About three years ago, um, I not only said goodbye to my home state and the other things that go with that, I also said goodbye to my home denomination, the United Methodist Church. Uh, for seven years I, prior, I had been leading a Sunday school class of about 60 to 70 people and a weekly dinner and a Bible study in our home uh, for the largest United Methodist congregation in the state of Kentucky. Yet, in, in those last couple of years there, my conscience began weighing on me. Many of the leaders within the United Methodist denomination were increasingly becoming wayward, right? openly disobeying the vows that they took when they were put into those positions. The leaders were openly affirming and celebrating abortion and non-Christian models of sexuality and marriage. And when I arrived on the island, a first order of business for me was to call the pastors of all the United Methodist congregations on the island to ask them about these issues. Not a single one that I called affirmed the views of the historic church. Not a single pastor affirmed the views of historic and orthodox Christianity. Not a single one. That was my signal. It's time to leave. Ahui ho. Right? For me, that goodbye was very tough. It was very difficult. It made my throat hurt. At one time, it was something so good. But I could no longer in good conscience sit under the leadership of these wayward bishops and leaders. I couldn't do it. And so I had to say goodbye and move on. Jesus was no longer the center. The center instead had become nothing but endless debates about the desires, the fleshly desires of humans, the desires of the flesh. And so since the church of the Nazarene is in the same Wesleyan stream or same Wesleyan tradition, I was able to make the move here pretty easily. And for that, I'm grateful. Right? For the last six months, I've had many conversations with our district superintendent about transferring my ordination credentials to the Church of the Nazarene. It's been an ongoing process. And so this coming, uh, this coming Saturday, January 18th, I had a, an interview with the district board about this. But in the lead up to that, this week, this past week, I had to work on a couple of questionnaires. And one of the questions it asks is this, are you committed to a lifetime of service for Jesus Christ in the Church of the Nazarene? Will you live by her requirements even when you think there might be a better way? And will you promote the unity of the body of Christ in all your actions as a minister of the gospel? It's an interesting set of questions there. I want to share with you the answer that I gave. Um, I said this, I am committed to a lifetime of service for Jesus Christ in the church of the Nazarene as long as it remains faithful to the historic and orthodox church. I will live by her requirements as long as she remains faithful to historic orthodox Christianity. I will promote the unity of the body of Christ in my actions as a minister of the gospel. You see, my hope is that this branch of Wesleyanism will remain strong and faithful. We have to keep Jesus at the center, or we're going to end up saying ahuiho to what we have. There's something very true about the statement, what one generation tolerates, the next embraces and affirms. 
And sadly, many of our seminaries and our so-called Christian colleges, that's where it all begins. Some of you are there in the middle of that, right? I've been there for the, the major part of my adult life. I've been moving in these Christian colleges and seminaries and teaching. But that's where the toleration often begins. I'm an insider. I know these things. And so there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to the sentiment that as goes the seminary, or as goes the Christian college, as goes the church, as goes society. In other words, what happens here at the universities and seminaries and colleges, they produce the next generation of the church and the next generation of pastors. So as goes the seminary or college, as goes the church, as goes society. And this morning, as we approach Revelation again, part of John's call is to just that, to, to be a church that keeps Jesus as the center, to be Christians who keep Jesus as the center. We need not tolerate anything that seeks to dethrone him or replace him. Be welcoming is one thing. To be embracing and affirming is another of whatever it is. Nothing gets to dethrone or decenter Jesus. Nothing. Right? Our mentality, our mindset, our cry has to be, Jesus, be the sinner. Period. So as we turn to the text this morning, I, I want to I wanna help us see that. Uh, our focal text for the morning, picking up where we left off last week, is Revelation 1, 9-20. And here's my translation based on the Greek text. I, John, your brother and fellow participant in hardship, both in the kingdom and in perseverance in Jesus, I was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice as a trumpet saying, that which you see, write in a book and send it to the seven, and send it to the seven churches into Ephesus, into Smyrna, and into Pergamum, and into Thyatira, and into Sardis, and into Philadelphia, and into Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice which was speaking with me. And after I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe and wearing around his chest a gold belt. Moreover, his head and white hairs were as white as wool, as snow, and his eyes as a flame of fire, and his feet like bronze as in a furnace of burning fire, and his voice as a sound of many waters, and having in his right hand seven stars, and coming out of his mouth a sharp double-edged sword, and his appearance as the sun shines in its power. And when I saw him, I fell before his feet as dead, and he placed his right hand upon me, saying, Don't fear. I myself am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm living into the ages of the ages, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, both the things which are and the things that will happen after these things. This is the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, come back to that in a minute. There's a lot going on here. Like, what is happening? This seems kind of crazy. But 
uh, I, I want to keep what I consider to be the focus, the focus. In particular, it's this image that John paints. And so that's what I was bringing up here. Um, in the 1500s, there was a, a woodcut artist named George Le uh, Lemberger. George Lemberger. And he created a somewhat jarring uh, artistic piece. You can see it up here on the screen, portraying the scene in these verses. Revelation 1, 9 to 20. You, you see it here. So you have this double-edged sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, which likely represents the, the paired word and testimony. Uh, and you have Jesus in the middle of these seven lampstands, and in his right hand he's holding seven stars, which are the same thing as the seven angels. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, which are the same thing as the seven spirits before God's throne, which are, as we talked about last week, um, just symbolic a symbolic way of saying the fullness of the Spirit's power and presence. Right? Or, or to say it differently, the, the seven stars, like the seven spirits, represent the fullness of the Spirit. So at Jesus' right hand is the fullness of the Spirit. Now, we got to get used to this kind of thing. It's, it's kind of crazy what he's doing. John is going to use descriptions to describe the same thing repeatedly. It's a way uh, to emphasize something. But he's going to use also parts of what he's talking about to describe the whole. Right? It's an amazing rhetorical device that he's using. And one that, uh, once we pick up on this, so much of Revelation starts to make sense. Right? So this rhetorical strategy has a name. It's called metonymy. Uh, and that, by the way, is our, our word for the week, metonymy. Metonymy is using part of something to describe the whole, right? If I were to say, Aloha Stadium was going crazy, you know that I'm not actually talking about the, the rusty steel stadium structure, right, itself. Like the stadium itself isn't going crazy. If anything, it would be decaying or falling through. But um, you know that I'm talking about uh, the people, in the stadium going crazy. Right? So I'm talking uh, a part to represent something bigger, the whole thing. Or if I say the entire plant is on strike, well, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Not the plant itself, right? not the, the business or the building or whatever, but the workers of the plant are on strike. John does this exact thing over and over and over. He's going to we, we do that over and over and over in our own lives, so we can't fault John too much for it. But we've got to figure out what he's trying to say, right? And he does this using metonymy over and over and over. And part of our task as readers, as students, is to in, try to interpret this and understand it. It's not exactly code, but it's kind of like it. So in these verses that we just read, John is using metonymy. He's using parts to describe holes. And so... In this picture that John paints, we see Jesus right in the middle of the seven lampstands. And if you go to the end of these verses, John tells us that the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. And again, as we talked about last week, the seven churches are representative of the full church, like the church in general, the universal, the global church. So what we have in this piece of artwork by Limburger is a very literal translation of a bunch of symbols. It's a very literal depiction of what's described there in Revelation 1, 9 to 20. What John's really actually talking about and what John's trying to get us to see and understand in his image is this. 
He's trying to get us to see Jesus standing at the center of the church. Right? Jesus standing at the center of the church with the full power of the Spirit at his right, at his side, in his hands. That's what Revelation 1, 9 to 20 is all about. Jesus at the center of the church with the power of the Spirit at his right. Mighty might at his hand, right? And here's the thing. When we keep Jesus at the center of the church, we have access through Jesus to the power of the Spirit. But when we break covenant, when we decenter Jesus, when, when we push him from the center of the church, it exists no longer. That access is gone. When Jesus is decentered, the Spirit's power and presence isn't accessible, it's unavailable. When we decenter Jesus and try to put anything else at the center, we cease to be the true church. Period. When we decenter Jesus and try to put anything else at the center, we simply end up looking like whatever is put at the center instead. But when Jesus is the center, when we keep him at the center, that's who we end up looking like. And that's when we have access to the Spirit. Now, this, this is the first of John's 12 visions. He's going to have these 12 visions as we read all throughout Revelation. He's got 12 visions that span across the book, right? And this, this first vision, it's going to actually extend on into chapter 2 and all the way to the end of chapter 3. And in this first vision, John is making the point about what it looks like when Jesus is at the center of the church. And immediately following this, as we'll, we'll see next week, he's going to give us seven examples of what it looks like when Jesus remains the center and when he doesn't. What's kind of, what's, what's kind of intriguing to me is this issue of Patmos here, right? Patmos is this island in the Aegean Sea, is what it's called, which is a smaller part of the larger Mediterranean Sea. And so in, in, in Revelation 1.9, John mentions that he was, that's a past tense verb, that he was on Patmos, on this island, in conjunction with the vision. And so it raises a question, was he, was he ever really confined to Patmos? Or did he just visit Patmos in a vision? Or did he just see Patmos in a vision? Well, it raises the question, was he, was he physically on Patmos? Did he compose Revelation while he was there on Patmos or after he left the island if he was there? Right? Had he been there and written after he left? So for my part, I think he, uh, I think he physically was there on Patmos. I think he had these series of 12 visions while... He was there, and I think he wrote Revelation while he was there. But I also take the view that he sent this uh, Revelation, what he wrote, off. He sent it out, perhaps with a visitor, right? And, and that person or those persons carried it back to these seven churches in Asia Minor, and uh, they delivered it to these churches. And I think John probably left this island called Patmos after the emperor Domitian died in the year 96, right? Because John went to Patmos under, uh, the, under, under exile, under Domitian. 
So this is where I want to make a point that exile wasn't always a bad thing. That sounds a little a little odd, right? Exile wasn't always a bad thing. Sometimes, in fact, exile was self-imposed. Exiles, they, they were often just banned from certain cities or certain towns, not, not necessarily an entire country or, or something like that. And often, you know what, the exile, or the exilee, whatever you want to call it, they could choose where they wanted to go. They weren't forced necessarily to go somewhere. And what's really interesting is when you start to read all kinds of ancient literature um, about this, these accounts of exiles, you, you learn, hey, exile isn't always a bad thing. There are a number of accounts from the ancient world that, that tell us this. This one guy named Tellus, he wrote an account while he was in exile. Another guy named Favorinus wrote an account while he was in exile. And there are numerous others. And they say that Exile frees one up to think. That exile uh, frees one up to write. Right? Exile gives the opportunity for a man to prove his manliness. Exile gives a man the opportunity to prove his courage and boldness. And so what you find is that there's almost like this genre of, <coughs> excuse me, of island exile literature in the ancient world. It's really, really fascinating to read. I was reading a bunch of it this week. But when John writes from exile, I take the perspective that one of his goals is basically a recovery effort. He's on a recovery mission. John writes, why? Because from his perspective, God's story had been hijacked. Now, this is really important for all the rest of our, our study in Revelation. So follow me on this. John was on a recovery mission because he believed that God's story had been hijacked, decentered, if you will. You see, there was this view or this tradition among Jews like John that had associated the stars up in the sky with God's glory. The psalmist shared this view. We read about this in Job. We read about constellations like Pleiades and Orion in Job. And if you visit, if you visit some of these ancient synagogues that they've unearthed. If you go over and visit them today, what you're going to find on a lot of the floors, right in the center, are these big zodiacs. Right, right in the center of the synagogue. Sometimes on walls, but very often they were the centerpiece of the synagogue. The zodiac was put into the floor. And so we ask, why? Why is a zodiac in the middle of the synagogue? Well, at least partially because they believe that God was ruler of the heavens and the earth. They took the images in the zodiac of an ox, a sheep, a snake, uh, and so on, and they used those images, the Jews, to tell God's story. It was really, really cool. Um, they could look up at the sky, they could see the stars, see the constellations, and not just marvel at them, but use them to tell parts of God's story. The Jews had attached parts of God's story to the constellations. And the zodiac, in its fullness, when using it, you could tell the story of God. But Rome, or Babylon, they came along and they started hijacking it. They started attaching their own stories to the constellations, their own myths to the constellations. And so when John writes Revelation, he's writing in large part to undermine that 
to undermine what he rightfully viewed as God's. And so we need to read Revelation right. We need to read Revelation responsibly. And this will mobilize us as John hoped to reclaim God's story. And guess what? At the center of the story, guess who stands there? John tells us that it's Jesus. Jesus is the center. And one of the, the funny things about the Christian life is that we have so many things competing for that center in our lives, for that space in our lives, things trying to dethrone Jesus in our lives, our wants, our desires, the things we don't want, the things we don't desire, people, jobs, things, right? It's as if everything tries to, to creep in and nudge Jesus from the center. When society and life presses in, how do we keep Jesus at the center? Because it's tough. It's a tough thing. But this is where I think that Wesleyans can look back to John Wesley for some advice, some excellent advice. Wesley did some radical stuff. His call to scriptural holiness was very, very radical. Wesley and others, um, they had these 22 questions that they would ask themselves every single day. And I believe that if we would begin doing this as a church, we would never, ever have to worry about Jesus being decentered. And so as we head into 2020, this is going to be one of my challenges to you. Whether you make res New Year's resolutions or not, I want to challenge you to make this a daily part of your life. Because I promise you that if you do this, Jesus will remain the center. He'll remain the center of our lives and of this congregation. And if we do this, God will move. A revival can happen. So I want to look at these 22 questions that uh, Wesley and his peers asked themselves every day. And I think on a frequent basis, right, they would answer in the presence of one another. And what this is, it's serious. It's, it's not treating church as a game. It's not treating Christianity as a game. This is real. This is real Jesus as the center kind of stuff. So I want to look at these. Look, look at number one. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I'm better than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Am I honest in all my acts and words, or do I exaggerate? Do I confidentially pass on to another what was told to me in confidence? Gossip. Can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress? A slave to friends, to work, or habits? Am I self-conscious, self-pitying, or self-justifying? Did the Bible live in me today? Do I give it time to speak to me every day? Am I enjoying prayer? When did I last speak to someone else about my faith? Do I pray about the money I spend? Do I get to bed on time and get up on time? Do I disobey God in anything? Do I insist upon doing something about which my conscience is uneasy? Am I defeated in any part of my life? Am I jealous, impure, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? How do I spend my spare time? 
Am I proud? Do I thank God that I'm not as other people, especially as the Pharisees who despise the publican? Is there anyone whom I fear, dislike, disown, criticize, hold a resentment toward, or disregard? If so, what am I doing about it? Do I grumble or complain constantly? Is Christ real to me? I want to make this part of the bridge DNA. I want to make this part of each of our daily lives, of our family lives. You can begin by simply taking your bulletin home today. You got all the questions on the back there and putting it somewhere that you're going to see it every single day. Do this before you go to bed. Do this maybe multiple times a day when you wake up, when you go to lunch, when you're driving, not when you're driving, um, before you go to bed, right? Because this, this is part of the path to holiness. This is part of the path to holiness. A lot of people want to be around holiness, but they don't really want to work for the holiness. This is, this is the path to holiness. And being Nazarene or being Wesleyan, that desire for holiness, it has always been a part of the DNA. Always. We look for holiness of the mind, of the hearts, and of the hands. And when our hearts, souls, minds, and strengths have been infused with holiness, amazing things begin to happen. Right? We have to strive to spread scriptural holiness into each area of our lives. And I'm telling you, when it happens, lives change. God moves in mighty ways when Jesus is the center of our lives. Holy living changes lives. Holy living changes lives. Now, I was in a meeting with a colleague from Pacific Rim Christian University this week, and he shared an incredibly powerful story of something that happened right at the end of last semester. At the start of the year, my, my friend, my professor friend, he had assigned students this project to deal with some real-life issue today. And they had to come up with some ways as Christians for how to ethically address this issue. And one group of students, they chose the topic of human trafficking. That was our project for the semester. My professor friend signed off on the project, and they let him run with it, let him go for it. But there was much more to the story than he realized. At the end of the semester, when the groups had to give their presentations in front of everyone else, he learned that one of the women in the group had been trafficked. And this is in part why the group picked it. And he was floored by that. And she shared her story in front of the class, and it was deeply moving. But that wasn't the end of it. At the end of that group's presentation, a guy spoke up, was also a student in the class, and told her, I thought I recognized you from somewhere. This guy had been on the other side of it. He was the human trafficker and had, in fact, trafficked her. And it was like time had stopped right there in the middle of class. And these two people, they were able to look at each other eye to eye right there. And real life forgiveness happened. And in that moment, Jesus was the center of their lives. And 
it created the moment and the space for them to embrace and weep and forgive. Forgiveness happened. The perpetrator and the victim, they were embracing. And a holy moment took place. Right? What an insanely beautiful and powerful and holy moment. It's exactly the kind of thing that can happen when two people let Jesus be the center. Otherwise, it can't happen. When Jesus is the center of a congregation, we can see those kinds of things happen. We can embrace and we can forgive and we can move, be moved by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, someone told me just a few weeks ago, four or five weeks ago, you know what, in 20 years, the Nazarene Church is just going to be where the United Methodists are today. And I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't. And the only way that I know to prevent that is to keep Jesus as the center. Nothing else. Nothing else. Just Jesus. Only Jesus, only Jesus can be the center. We got to strive for that. So this week, as we seek out holy moments, let's try to begin our days and end our days with Wesley's 22 questions. I'm going to. I'm going to do that. Right? Uh, and I hope that you'll join. Because I long to see Jesus as our center, to stay our center. And I long to see more of these holy moments in your lives and mine. Amen? Let's stand together this morning if you're able. And if you would, turn your palms upright and receive this benediction, receive this blessing. And now, may we in all that we think, say, feel, and do, keep Jesus as our center. And as we do, may we be aware of the fullness of the Spirit and His desire to create holy moments within us and among us. Go in peace.